When my friend Sam said, well, you know, God sees my heart and he knows I'm basically a good person. He's denying his depravity. And that's why Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been in a study of the book of Romans, and today we move into chapter 5, where we look at the joy of salvation. Oftentimes, when we have unresolved differences with others, we feel unsettled and wish we could have a better relationship. When that situation is elevated to the level of God, and we've been out of His will, that lack of joy is magnified exponentially. And so the first two verses of Roman 5 encourage us to get things right with God, which will result in true joy and exultation. I want to invite you to take the Word of God and turn to the book of Romans chapter 5 today as we continue our study of this great letter. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rank your level of joy? With 10 being off the charts and 1 being depressed, Think over the last 30 days, where would you put yourself in terms of your level of joy? I was counseling a couple recently, and I reminded them that their marriage relationship parallels their relationship with God. Both of them began with an expression of trust in another person. Both of them began a whole new way of life. Both of them are a provision of God's grace, for he who finds a wife finds a good thing in favor, grace with the Lord, the Scripture says. And both of them are designed to get better and better. But unfortunately, many times they do not. Certainly, there are times of discouragement in every marriage. That's just a part of life. But God designed marriage not to get worse, but to get better. God wants our marriage to grow and to develop and to deepen. But very often, instead of getting better, it gets worse. But if any people on the face of the earth have the potential to have a better marriage, it's those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord. If you are a born-again Christian and you want a dynamic relationship with your wife, with your husband, do you know how you get it? You have a dynamic relationship with the Lord. And when your relationship with the Lord is fantastic, your relationship with your spouse can be fantastic. Paul described for us in Galatians 5 the fruit of the Spirit. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He did not say the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is, because the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have another. I could have just as easily have asked you this morning, what's your level of patience on a scale of 1 to 10? What's your level of self-control? The degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. And God in His Word speaks that as we grow in Christ and mature in Christ, we see fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And so if you are growing in Christ and these nine qualities are forever increasing in your relationship with God, that makes place for a great home, for great marriage, for a great environment in which to raise your children. And so we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and Paul's going to address that subject here in the Romans, the fifth chapter. He's going to talk about the why 
and the how of how the fruit of the Spirit becomes real in your life. He won't use that term in this chapter, but he will use those principles that are described in chapters where he does. Now, I'm not talking about psychological manipulation, about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about some kind of plastic smile that no one appreciates that's put on your face. I'm talking about real, genuine joy that God the Holy Spirit is able to give. Now, it's probably going to take us six or seven weeks to get through this chapter of Scripture. It's most important. We're going today today to just look at two verses, but since this whole section, the first 11, deal with this subject of rejoicing and joy, I want to read the entire section. So follow along in your Bibles, Romans 5, beginning now in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we are enemies... We're reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This passage is giving us some reasons for rejoicing. And each reason is separated with the phrase, I have it underlined, and not only this, indicating that the next reason is even to be considered greater and better than the one that was before it. That phrase is found three times in the Bible here in verse 2, verse 3, verse 11. In verse 2, he says, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3 begins, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, And then verse 11 concludes the section, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of your translations don't say exalt. They use the word joy or rejoice or glory or boast. And some interchange those words, but the New American Standard is most precise because there's one Greek word all the way through the text, and they translate it with this word exalt. Now, don't confuse it with the word exalt. When you exalt something... When we exalt the Lord, we lift Him up. But when we exalt, we joy, we rejoice in God. Notice what he says here in verse 1. It begins with the word, therefore. And of course, you need to know what it is, what it is there for. This is the fifth therefore in the book of Romans. Paul has already explained in the doctrine of condemnation, man's sinful, fallen, depraved life and his need for redemption. In chapter 3, he taught us that salvation is not by good deeds, it's not by works, it's by the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he illustrated it through the life of Abraham, who had been saved by grace through faith and not by works. 
And his purpose to take a whole chapter on Abraham was not just to give us a a biography on the man's life, but to apply his life to ours. And that's why he's going to begin this chapter. Therefore, in light of what I've just said, if you will notice, the very last word of chapter 4 is the word justification, which we saw does not mean just as if I had never sinned, but it means just as if I had always obeyed. It's a term from the field of law that meant to declare righteous. God, if God has saved you, He has declared you righteous. He has declared your life with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he opens this section, having been justified by faith. It's a Greek tense that speaks of an accomplished fact. We've already seen you don't grow into justification. It happens in a moment, in an instant. In the twinkling of an eye, you move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. When you come in faith and you believe in the merits of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you, He justifies you. Therefore, having been justified by faith. And so, He then gives two words that are very important in the text. We have. You see that? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. He's talking about some of those things that accompany our justification. He's talking about some of the blessings that are ours now that we are saved. And there are many Christians who do not know those blessings that accompany their justification. And because they don't know those things, they don't have reason to rejoice. But I want to tell you, if you get a hold of these truths in the first 11 verses, you're just going to want to shout. You're, you're just going to rejoice and thank God you're going to join in Him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have some possessions. And I just want to today underscore three. If you're using your note-taking outline, I want you to first consider that we can rejoice because we have acceptance. We have acceptance. Again in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to have peace with God? Please note here, he's not speaking of the peace of God, but peace with God. He's not talking about the peace within your heart. There are other verses of Scripture that speak of that. One of the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. That's the peace of God, not peace with God. And once you are saved... As you continue to walk in the Spirit and learn to depend upon Him, that peace will grow and mature and deepen. The Lord Jesus spoke of the peace of God when He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. The peace of God. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Now, he addresses it in other sections. We studied some years ago the book of Philippians. In Philippians 4, he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts, shall garrison your hearts in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5, he's not talking about some subjective peace, some experiential peace. He's talking about an objective, a positional kind of peace. Peace with God does not conjure up a feeling. He's not talking about feelings here. 
understand, and the, one of the reasons I'm underscoring this is because sometimes when Christians witness to lost people, they'll say, well, you really need peace. And they'll tell you, I have peace. And there is a sense, if you look at the nine fruits of the Spirit that are listed there, there's a sense in which an unbeliever can know those. Have you ever met an unbeliever with self-control, with a lot of discipline? Of course you have. But that's not the same kind of self-discipline that the Spirit of God gives. And so they may have a peace, but Jesus said, the peace I give you is not like the world gives you. They may have some kind of internal feeling of, of goodness and wellness from sitting by a lake or practicing yoga or meditating on their navel, some, something. And they think everything's fine between me and God. I have peace. And I've witnessed the people, some on their deathbed, bed, and they talk about this subjective peace that they have, and they feel like everything's okay, but they haven't embraced the gospel. And they don't have peace with God. And until you have peace with God, you cannot experience the kind of peace that God offers you in terms of peace, the peace of God. Peace with God is that you and God are right in terms of your sin, that it's been forgiven, that you have been justified. Turn over a few pages to the right to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans 8. Again, we're not talking about some state of mind, the kind of state that you can know as a believer, say as you cast your cares upon Him. We're talking about the fact that as Romans 10 says, you were enemies and now you've made peace through the blood of His cross. In Romans 8, look if you will at verse uh, 6. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh, which is the overall objective and mindset and worldview of an unbeliever, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now, the Greek word here for hostile is translated in other places, hateful. From God's perspective, the mind and heart of an unbeliever is in hostility with him. That old carnal nature that you are born with, and Paul's going to explain that to us, why we get it, and why it's fair that we get it from the moment of conception. And you'll need to wait till we come to the second half of Romans 5. But while we are shaped in iniquity, while that is totally fair because of our sin in and with Adam, because we are born sinners, anything that we can do out of a fallen nature cannot please God. It's hostility towards God. The flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. Now understand, you ask the average man, do you hate God? He'd say, well, no, I don't hate God. Of course I don't hate God. But when you begin to describe the God of the Bible, oh, everything changes. You know, on my last day off, I was picking up some pecans in my yard. We, have, we live in an old pecan grove, and they're falling this year. And there's a guy across the street right from me, and he was picking up nuts. And he said, hey, how you doing, buddy? And met him, and I walked over to his territory, found out his name. His name was Stan. And we got into a conversation and it was obvious that he didn't know the Lord. And he was describing God as this Santa Claus kind of God. And, you know, God in the end is going to see that I have a good heart. 
well, God says that your heart's desperately wicked. He's going to see in the end that I have a good heart and everything's fine and he's going to let me in. And he thought we had a lot of common ground and I began to describe to him the God of the Bible. And listen, that, sometimes that just rubs people wrong. They, they don't like that God. They like the God they've invented and created in their own mind. And so when you ask the average man, do you hate God? I don't hate God. But when he begins to see the God of the Bible, a God who is unchanging, a God who is eternal, he doesn't like that God. He doesn't like a God who says, I can't have sex before I'm married. He doesn't like a God who says, I can't have extramarital affairs. He doesn't like a God who says, homosexuality is, is not okay. Not that kind of God. He doesn't like a God who says that men who have not come through Christ will spend eternal separation. And then you begin to see the hostility, and sometimes it comes against you. That's what Paul's talking about. Those who are in the flesh cannot please him. I recently read the testimony of Jacob Koshi, a man born and raised in Singapore, who had one driving ambition in his life, and that was to make money. He wanted things and he desperately wanted them and he wanted to be rich and it led him into the world of gambling and illicit drugs and as a dealer and ran a whole smuggling network and he ended up in a Singapore prison. And when he was locked in that little tiny cell, his whole empire had crumbled and he said he just felt so destitute and empty inside and his one enjoyment in life was that he worked a deal with one of the guards where he could get some tobacco smuggled in. And he'd get his tobacco and he took that Gideon's Bible and he tore off the pages and he rolled the cigarettes with the pages of a Gideon Bible. And he fell asleep smoking it and it fell on the floor. And when he woke up, he looked down and that little cigarette had kind of opened up and all he could read was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it intrigued him. So he asked for another Bible. And he got one and he began to read about Saul of Tarsus, how God could save an enemy and make him a friend. And he thought, if God could save someone like the Apostle Paul, certainly he could save me. And he got on his face and he humbly asked Jesus Christ to be his personal Lord and Savior. It's a marvelous testimony of how God worked in his life a marvelous testimony of how God changed him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he's a missionary in the Far East. And every once in a while when he shares his testimony, he says, who would have believed that I could have been saved to the truth of God by smoking the pages of scripture? <laughs> Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why Jesus said, those who have only had a physical birth, those who are born of the flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Three times over, he said, you must be born again to see, to enter the kingdom of God. Some people think, well, man's getting better and better. He's not getting better, the Bible teaches. And so they think, well, all we need to do is educate him and culturize him and just give him a little boost. He doesn't need a boost. He needs a birth from above, Jesus said. He must be born again. And God views every sin, every evil thought, every perversion as an offensive maneuver against him, like a missile thrust into the face of a holy God. 
And that's why the Lord said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. See, most people think that the judgment is way out there in the future. Like my friend Stan, that God in the end will determine based on what he did, whether or not he will accept him. And God already said, no, written across a man's forehead is guilty, condemned. By nature, Paul will say we are children of wrath. Jesus didn't say, stay off the broad road. He said, man is already on the broad road that leads to destruction. He's inviting him to come through a different gate. Man is judged already. Again, here in Romans 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh who have not had this birth from above cannot, cannot, cannot please God. We were by nature, verse 10 says, enemies. But now we have been declared righteous. And so Paul says, we exult, we rejoice in God Almighty. Why? Because we have peace with God. Verse 1 begins, therefore, having been justified, how? By faith. Now, if you've been here, we've already studied the need for a person to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. In Romans 3, he said, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then in that same chapter, he said, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Your sin, your deeds have polluted any good thing that you can do. And so your righteous deeds, not your worst deeds, your best deeds, the Bible says to the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags. And so in the fourth chapter, he says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned, it's credited to him as righteousness. If you bring human merit and human deeds as a reason for God's acceptance, you're making two major violations according to the Scripture. Number one, you are denying the sufficiency of Jesus' blood to save you. You think you need to add something to it. You're denying His sufficiency, and in the process, you're denying your depravity. When my friend Sam said, well, you know, God sees my heart, and He knows I'm basically a good person. He's denying His depravity. And that's why Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Notice further in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I was witnessing to a man this week who came to deliver a piece of equipment at my house. And as he was unloading it off the truck, I was talking to him about the Lord. I said, you go to church anywhere? And he said, well, no, not really. And we went on and asked him the diagnostic questions, and he said he was 100% sure he was going to heaven. I said, well, why, were you sh why are you sure? He said, well, you know, uh, when I lived in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, I lost my job and I needed a job, so I thought I would come to Beaufort. always wanted to come to Beaufort, came to Beaufort. He said, within a week, I found two jobs. You see, God is working in my life. I have faith. Now, that's not the kind of faith that will save you, believing God for a job. Now, that's an expression of God's common grace. He causes the rain and the sun to shine on the good and the evil. And very often, God uses His blessings, as we studied in Romans 2, to bring about repentance. 
We think, well, a man has to fall to the bottom before he can look up. Not always. God sometimes showers a man with blessings, and God uses the blessings of God to bring about repentance. But his faith was not in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not faith in faith that will save you. It's not faith in trusting God to provide daily needs or healing or anything else you can think of. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Nelson, the great British admiral in the 19th century, was once victorious over a French admiral. And when the French admiral, upon his defeat, came swaggering up to Lord Nelson, he extended his hand. And he stepped back, the British admiral. He said, sir, your sword, please. I want your sword before I want your handshake. He wanted him to acknowledge that he had been conquered. So don't try to shake hands with me until you admit your defeat. People have this view of God. We're just buddy-buddy. I'm just going to come into the throne room and shake God's hand. And they are not willing to acknowledge his lordship. There's a war going on. And God views a lost man as his enemy. He loves his enemy as he commanded us to love our enemies. But he is nonetheless an enemy of God. And that's why the apostle said, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ, one whom he raised from the dead. And so when you preach Jesus is Lord, you begin to see man's rebellious nature and his resistance towards God. Listen, Joel Olstein, and I don't stammer and stutter for one second, is preaching another Jesus. He is not preaching the Jesus Christ of the Bible. He is preaching another Christ. And thousands are being sucked into it. When you preach Jesus as Lord, that you must come to Him and willing for him to forgive your sin, implicit in forgiving your sin as you're calling your sin wrong and evil, and that it needs to be forgiven and changed, then it's a whole nother ball of wax. Jesus is Lord, and you come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. You submit to his lordship. You cannot have what he gives until you submit to who he is. As I said last time, a child can understand it. A child can know that his sin is offensive to God. And he wants God to forgive that sin and to cleanse that sin and to change him. Notice further, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say we'll eventually get it. He didn't say we're working towards it. He says we have it. You don't grow into peace with God. You don't work your way into peace with God. It's not a continual process. We have peace with God. When you come and say, God, I am an unrighteous sinner, unable to save myself, and I cast myself on the merits of the Lord Jesus in his cross, then God does a transfer from one kingdom into another. And you shouldn't delay that kind of decision. Because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. Later in our study of the book of Romans, we'll see that a man believes with his heart and confesses with his mouth unto salvation. And if you've not made that decision for your life, you ought not delay, for no one knows the day nor the hour of his appointed time. To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 5, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM21, entitled Rejoicing in God. Tomorrow we continue our look at Rejoicing in God. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.